Welcome to Leading for Life Stories Season 2. My name is Bob Judson and I'm your host for this podcast and I'm absolutely delighted to have you here joining me. Thanks very much and I really, really hope you enjoy what follows. So this week I've got a real treat for you and we're doing something a little bit different. As those of you who are regular listeners will know, generally my guest interviews are very much talking about their personal journeys and leadership But I also do thematic podcasts on a range of different topics. And this time I'm effectively doing a guest interview on a thematic issue. And that thematic issue is very much focused around artificial intelligence. And I'm really privileged to have had the chance to do an interview with Steve Brown, who by any measure is a leading expert on generative AI, autonomous AI assistance, digital transformation, the future of work, and how advances in AI will shape the future of education, business, and society. He's got decades of experience in AI and high-tech to advise companies on winning AI transformation strategies, and he speaks on the future of AI globally. He's delivered keynotes in over 60 cities around the world, spanning 15 countries and six continents. He's had 25 years at Intel and co-founded a Web3 company, the Provenance Chain Network, And he's also worked at DeepMind, Google's AI research lab in London, and is now an advisor to a revolutionary AI company, Energetic AI. His clients are a bit of a who's who of significant players in the market, including Nike, JP Morgan, Samsung, Comcast, Audi, PepsiCo, and Disney. He's featured on CNN, BBC, Bloomberg, Forbes, and The Wall Street Journal. And he's written books on this topic as well. He's absolutely fascinating to talk to, and it was a really, really tremendous interview that I hope will give you a huge amount of additional insight into everything around the whole issue of AI, which is so important to leaders everywhere. And I really do hope this is one that uh, that really resonates with you. But uh, without further ado, here we go. Well, Steve, fantastic to have you on my podcast. I'm hugely grateful. Thank you very much indeed for your time. It's such an important time for the type of stuff you do. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I I love what I do. And I hope that comes across in our conversation. But it's great to see you, Campbell. Yeah, thanks. No, I'm sure it absolutely will come across having seen you a few times before. I mean, obviously, I'm very familiar with what you do and so on. But I, I, I guess a lot of my listeners won't be. Um, so actually yeah. to get us started, could you just give a bit of a short summary of your career journey and, and in particular, just what a futurist is, because it's not a term that I think is in particularly common currency. Yeah, let's start with what a futurist is and I'll give you the, how did I get there? Um, so in the UK, it tends to be that futurist is, is called a futurologist. I don't know why it's different, but we like to do different things in the UK. Uh, I've lived in the States now for 27 years. And over here, it's called a futurist. And what that is, it's um, an actual discipline, um, and it's about foresights. So I'm not, I don't make predictions. My job is not to make predictions. That's where you go to a fortune teller to tell you what's going to happen in the future. What a futurist does is to look at trends and to figure out how those trends will come together over time to make things possible. So I look at, of course, technology trends. I'm a I have a technology background. I worked at Intel. I worked at DeepMind. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, but you're looking at technology trends, how technologies will mature over time, 
um, what their capabilities will be, how those capabilities will grow, and then what the cost curves look like. So when does the technology that is out of reach of most people now become something that can incorporate into a cell phone um, you know, five years in the future and it's something that's just part of everybody's lives? It's looking at those cost curves and those capability curves and projecting them forward. Um, also looking at business trends. So what are the business models that are successful now? You know, um, the sharing economy rose to prominence, what, 10, 12 years ago? And businesses like Uber and Airbnb were born. Um, the freemium model. So giving away a product for free and then charging over and above that um, with for subscriptions, uh, subscription models. So looking at, you know, what are the, what are the current things that are happening in business? And that's also thinking about what are the regulations and, and what's the business environment like? And then finally, the most important thing I think about. And when I was at Intel, I uh, was trained at the knee of Dr. Genevieve Bell, who was a Stanford um, cultural anthropologist. So she taught me to look at the world through the lens of people and understand what is it that people want? What are their motivations? What is important in their lives? How do they live their lives? And I worked in a group of social scientists, ethnographers, and cult- cultural anthropologists to really think about people and what are, what are some trends in people's lives? What are, this, what are some uses of technology? What are some problems that people have that they might want to solve? So I look at all of those trends and put them all together, and then you're trying to ask and answer two questions. One is, what's the future that you want to build? It's not projecting what will happen, but a very kind of agency focus. What are you going to do, right? With all of these capabilities coming together, what do you want to do two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever the time frame is that you're thinking about? And then the other important question is, what's the future you want to avoid? What are the potential unintended consequences of a, a product or a service that you might build? So, you know, it would have been good for Mark Zuckerberg to think about that when he was building Facebook, for example. So that's what a futurist does. Um, I did that when I was at Intel. Um, so let's, let's go to the career thing. Uh, a couple of degrees in microelectronic systems engineering. Uh, so I, there was a time when I could design computer chips and I could design boards and write software. Can't do any of those things now. I forgot about how to do all of it and uh, I haven't kept up with the technology, but I, you know, I, I know how all of that works. So when I was at Intel, I could stand you know, toe-to-toe with an Intel fellow, one of the most senior technologists there at a whiteboard and in you know, a block diagram and understand how it was all working. So that, that was an important foundation for me. But I was an engineer for a few years, didn't find that as exciting as other things. Um, and so moved into marketing, events, communications, uh, and eventually became one of Intel's two futurists. So I worked in Intel Labs, and my job was to think about the world 10 years out. At the, t- at the time, designing a chip for Intel took about seven years, from initial idea to rolling off the production line in hundreds of millions of units. And so we had to get out ahead of that and model the world 10 years out. So thinking about those technology trends, business trends, and so on. Uh, and then when I had enough of Intel after 27 years, uh, I had a wonderful experience there, a wonderful set of uh, career opportunities. Uh, I took some time to myself, so I became an independent futurist. And I still do that to this day. So I, I speak and I consult on the future uh, and help businesses to think through how technology will create new possibilities for them in the future. 
And then more recently, I got headhunted by DeepMind. Uh, DeepMind, for those of you who don't know the company, uh, that's Google's AI research company based in London. So I moved to London with my wife for 18 months. Uh, we worked for, I worked for DeepMind and I had a couple of positions there. Uh, they brought me over to lead their communications, marketing and public affairs team uh, in a, it's a senior director position, which at DeepMind, I was told that's the equivalent of a VP position at Google. So that's my, that's my leadership bona fides. Um, and then uh, I was having such a great time and they seemed to like me. So I stayed on another six months and I was their in-house futurist. So helping think through the future of a super secret technology that I can't talk about. Um, but it was a very exciting project. Uh, it was one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done to think through that kind of stuff. So I'm now back in the States. Um, I returned in February of last year. And uh, I'm back to speaking, consulting. And I was also advising an AI startup on uh, how to think through their go-to-market plan. So that's me. That's what I do. And uh, I, I, lately, I've pivoted to focusing 100% on AI. I've always talked about and thought about AI as a component of what I do, but it is apparent to me that it's so important, and we can talk about why that is, that I now do 100% focus on AI and how it will transform business and society and, and everything else. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating and and such a great summary of of the kind of futurist futurologist piece as well because it's I think it is you know, not necessarily obviously understood by lots of people. It's interesting and and just to dive back into that a little bit on you don't make predictions. Yet I'm guessing from what you described at Intel, you must be perilously close to becoming a fortune teller on the uh, on that score because you know they're clearly making big money business decisions and hedging on what the future actually is going to look like. And they're basing that on the advice they're getting from people like you, right? Yes, but you are, you're making bets based on your intention. It's not, you know, the, the future doesn't, isn't something that happens to us. The future is something that humans build together. And so it's about having the intention to decide what is it that we are going to build. And yeah, you have to place some bets on that. And if you're Intel, that means you're building $15 billion fabrication plants, multiple of them. <laughs> so, you know, you're making some pretty big financial bets, but those bets are going to pay off over a seven to 10 year period. So yeah, you, you, you do have to make predictions. Yeah. And, and I guess that's exactly what, that's what Kodak blockbuster, et cetera, didn't do. Right. And they didn't actually look at, uh, um, where the trends were going and, and what was likely to happen and their business model collapsed as a result. Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix and declined, <laughs> you know, and Kodak um, had the very first patent for a digital camera, but decided not to pursue it. I know, staggering, isn't it? I, I've always smiled, actually, at the, the J.K. Rowling thing where you know, a number of publishers turned down Harry Potter. And I've always thought, well, the individuals that actually made those decisions must be ruining that now. But uh, there you yep. go. No, I mean, on a, on a personal level, uh, your story is also very interesting. And, and what I typically do on these uh, these podcasts is talk about a lot of people, sort of your personal leadership journey. And as we talked about pre, uh, pre the interview, in your case, actually, it probably makes a lot more sense to help shape other leaders thinking about stuff you're deeply involved in on, on AI. And I'm, I'm very grateful for your you know, kind of willingness to do that. So we'll, we'll definitely get to uh, to that in a sec. But 
just before we do, I'm really interested in the kind of early motivations piece and what was it that set you on the path, as it were, and and how did you prepare yourself for the for the start of of your career as it now is? Hmm. Um, I suppose it started in a computer lab. Well, in a lab at Loughborough University. My dad was a, a physics lecturer at Loughborough University in the seventies, and my mum at the time was doing. Um, was doing a degree as a mature student in social psychology. And to get us out of the house, me and my sister, um, to get us out of the house, my dad would take us into his lab and give us something to do. He'd entertain us by pouring. It was, it was a low-temperature physics. So he'd pour liquid nitrogen on the floor and we'd play with dry ice, that sort of thing. But that would entertain us for about 10 minutes. And then he would take us into the computer room and there'd be a, there was a big terminal and we could talk to some mainframe computer and play adventure game on it. And then he, there's a series of computers he would buy to do con- you know, computer control in his lab, and he would bring them home, and I got to play with them. So I had very early access to computers, and, I, and then I, I could see that they were going to change the world. And I'd write programs, and from a very early age, Bob, I knew I didn't want to have children. And it was the, I realized that playing with computers and writing software was the closest I would get to creating life. I suppose I've always been fascinated with the idea of artificial intelligence from a very young age. So that's what got got me started. I was fascinated by computers. I I was watching the evolution of them, I suppose. I was a little young futurist as well then. And I could see that they were going to change the world. And so I, I thought, well, okay, if, if I want to pursue that as a career path, I have to learn how they work and how to build them. And so that's why I went and did a couple of engineering degrees. It, it took me a while to realize, actually, I don't know. I don't need to know how to build them. There's other, other ways to participate in that world. And that's when I moved into sort of more marketing, sales, communications, events, and so on. But so that's what got me started was that a very, very early exposure to computers and realizing they were going to change everything. Yeah, you must have been in very much at the beginning looking at that time frame. I mean, I, I can remember the first computer I had was a Commodore Amiga. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, when I was I was in the Air Force at that stage, and I, I was always a bit of a sort of nothing on your level, but a bit of a techno geek, and I loved having kind of the the stuff that was out there. And, and just the price point alone of, of computers in those days was just extraordinary, of course. And I can remember on I was on a squadron where I had – I was the only one that had a 486 computer. The MOD didn't have any. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, yet when I look at it now and and look at the kind of technology that was in that and the size of the screen and then and you know the kind of capability in terms of memory it was just extraordinarily poor. I mean we had flying the Jaguar, which obviously I spent a long time flying. We we started out with an eight K computer. Uh, that was the uh, you know the total memory the thing had, and it was actually extraordinary how in those days, and I think they've got a bit, uh, you, you'll have a view on this, I'm sure software engineers have got a bit lazier now because they've got so much more capacity to play with mm-hmm. huge amounts of memory, but they were incredibly efficient in, in what they packed into a remarkably small amount of memory. And, you know, it is, it is extraordinary how, as you say, they have shaped the world. I mean, that's the only way to describe it really and, uh, and, and change the world. Yeah, the old adage that, uh, you know, that there is more computing performance in the anti-lock braking system of your car than was used to put a man on the moon in the 60s. Add that forward. There's more computing performance in my Apple Watch 
than there was in the fastest supercomputer on the planet in the mid-90s. The water-cooled Cray 2, which filled a room, is now you know, multiple times more performance in my Apple Watch. It's just phenomenal what Moore's law has given us. It is absolutely crazy. I, I, I bought, when I had my Commodore Amiga, I bought a, uh, a hard disk for it when it was a hard disk came out. And it was this, I suppose the nearest analogy, it was about the size of a house brick, probably slightly bigger yeah. than a house brick, and it slotted onto the side, and it was 20 megabytes well, yeah. of hard disk storage, which is just nuts when you, uh, when you look at you know, SD cards or micro SD cards these days that have got terabytes actually nowadays, aren't there, that you can get extraordinary. Yeah. Back just before we move on to the kind of more into the AI piece, but if you were looking backwards from where you are now, so you know the opposite of being a futurist, and you were talking to school age Steve, what would you actually be saying to him on the back of everything you've done thus far? Um, yeah, there's lots of directions you can take that question. Um, I, I, just, I probably wish I'd been more confident as a kid. I'd probably given myself, you know, go for it more. Um, but if, if I, let's do it a different way. If, if I was that age now, what would I tell myself? How would I prepare myself for today's environment? It's probably a more useful question to tackle. Um, because whether people listening are parents or grandparents or younger and just tuning in and thinking about what they're going to do with their careers and their lives, um, that things are going to change so rapidly. In the next 20 years, my guess is we'll see more change driven by technology in the next 20 years than certainly the last 50, perhaps the last 100. And that's a huge thing to say, but that's kind of what we're looking at. And so, you know, for somebody, for a young Steve uh, who was maybe popping out of school um, at age 18 now, um, you know, I, I would... I would counsel them that the world is going to change, that they need to be constantly curious, super agile, willing to learn and and change themselves. I don't think there's such a thing as one career anymore. You know, I don't think there's people will have to retrain themselves multiple times in their careers. So I would tell myself to be, you know, agile, prepared to be, you know, willing to change and flexible and to have grit and determination. And not to give up, and to to double down on the things that make you human. Um, you know, machines are going to become an ever increasing part of our lives, and so to focus on building the skills that are the ones that machines won't have, at least for a while, and to double down on my own humanity, and because those are the things that will differentiate me in the marketplace and and make me successful and fulfilled in my life. So that's probably the best thing I can get, that I can think of for. For a young Steve Brown growing up today, it's a really great answer and, and very, a very very helpful one. I think actually because as you say, it is. I mean, the question is framed around what does it actually mean if you uh, for for people currently at that age. And I think it is a really challenging age for for people th- these days. I mean, I'm quite glad I'm not a kid growing up at the moment. Yeah. If I'm honest, I think there are just so many challenges that the uh, you know that are out there that we could you know massively digress going down social media and all those sorts of things that are. You know that I didn't have to deal with when I was when I was young, and and I'm I'm extremely glad of it, to be honest. The biggest question then will be: Will there be a labour market for their entire working lives? The answer is probably no. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and doubtless we're going to come, we will come a bit more into that, I think, because you're right. I mean, that, that segues neatly into the AI discussion, I think. And I, mean, I think it is an area you've, you've alluded to, you know, you're majoring on it now. So you're one of the people that really does get it and really understands it warts and all, I think. But it is an area that's talked about an awful lot, certainly on this side of the Atlantic. And I think generally, you know, globally these days, but often it's quite poorly understood and it's quite binary. It's either a brilliant thing that's going to save the world or it's a terrible thing that's going to destroy the world. Uh, I'd, I'd just be really interested in your take on on it in, in general terms. We'll get to some more specific stuff in a minute around leadership and so on for it, but uh, your predictions for the impact it's going to have. Well, predictions are something I do. <laughs> My comments not a Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll avoid the fortune teller thing. Yeah, all right. So your 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 expectations of uh, of the direction of travel. Yeah, it's it's more what might happen, right? It's it's about possibilities than predictions. That's it's kind of it's predict it's prediction adjacent, I suppose. But I'm not saying these things will happen, but they may they may trend in that direction. So. Um, is, I suppose we start with the question, is AI good or bad? Um, if you want to get that stark, I think the answer is yes, both. Um, because any powerful technology can be used for good or bad. The technology itself is benign, but it's how it gets used by humans that matters. And that leads you to these you know, doom scenarios or what I would call the zoom scenario, which is you know, humanity zooms forward. Um, you know, the, the challenges with AI are that it scales. It, it's, it's a very powerful scaling technology that allows us to scale what we do. And that could be boosting our productivity in the workplace, or it could be making a Russian troll farm way more successful at pumping out misinformation and disinformation. Right? One is a good thing. The other is a very bad thing. Um, and I think both are going to happen. And so you know, we need to, as a society, figure out how do we minimize the damage from this very powerful technology? What are ways that we can use AI to curtail the effects, the, the negative effects of AI? And what are ways that we can really amplify the positive benefits of AI? Um, you know, breakthroughs in medical research, um, discovering new materials, um, you know, potentially boosting the quality of education, healthcare provision, and, and so on. So it, it's going to be a bit of an arms race, and we need to know that going into it. But I think, is it good or, or bad? The answer is yes, it's both. And we're going to have to be very mindful about how we read the bad side of things. That, that's the futurist two questions, right? What's the future we want to build? And what's the future we want to avoid? So we're certainly going to see a lot of misinformation, disinformation, particularly in this upcoming U.S. election cycle. Um, but we're also going to see, you know, some jobs start to be nibbled away at. Um, but we're going to see jobs become a lot more fun. <laughs> so let's talk about that quickly. Um, I think we're, we're looking at two phases in, in the workplace. So we have been in the work era. We are moving now into the augmented work era, where a machine and a human work side by side on tasks. And that's going to elevate the human's capabilities. It's going to help them be more, cre more creative, more intuitive. Uh, they can offload tasks that they find boring. Um, they can offload work that's perhaps dangerous, um, repetitive, 
um, and focus on things that are more fulfilling. So I think in terms of productivity, efficiency, you know, early studies show that very clearly, uh, the quality of output, all of those are going up. Um, and also job satisfaction goes up. People actually enjoy using these AI-powered tools because it saves them time, helps them achieve more. They go home at the end of the day feeling they've done more, had more impact. And you know, we like that as humans. So we're in this, we're moving into this augmented work era. And if your job, whatever your job might be, is not currently augmented, it will be soon. There will be tools that you will use, whether they are you know, turbocharged Microsoft Office Suite or Google Workplace, or specific AI tools that are tuned for the role that you have, whether that's CEO or you know, COO or whatever your you know, whatever your leadership position is, there'll be tools that help you to do what you do better and more effic- efficiently, and, and you'll like it, <laughs> you know. But you you're going to have to be open to doing that. So there's this there's this augmented work here, and as leaders, we're going to have to shepherd our teams through that, help them to embrace it, to help them be more productive, efficient, effective, and so on. Uh, and that's going to be a you know probably a five to ten year transformation. To, to go through that, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, already I can see uh, I can see some of what you're saying, I and mean, just on things like LinkedIn posts, where LinkedIn are recently, I'm sure you've seen it. They've introduced mm-hmm. a you know rewrite your post with AI, and I, I just for fun, really, I started playing with that uh, with the post, not least that I do when I put trailers out for these podcasts, and the uh, and I actually I've been really impressed. I, you know, it doesn't. It's not always great. I mean, sometimes I'll turn around and go, "No, I don't like that," and I'll undo it. But the uh, but some of the time, it's I've gone, "Yeah, actually, that's better than what I wrote." Uh, and it it is it's clever for sure. That's a hundred percent. That's clever. But just yeah. to come back before, so I know I interrupted you, so I'll uh, I'll put you back on flow in a minute. But on the good versus bad thing, mm. how much of a role do you think AI is going to have in sifting out the bad? I misinformation, organized crime, all that sort of stuff. Presumably, if we're clever about it, then we can design and use tools that, you know, that yeah. are AI-focused that help you know, not eliminate that, but at least mitigate some of the, uh, the challenges with that. Yeah, I think the same way that you know, AI is used in spam filters you know, to try and keep your inbox from overflowing with Viagra ads. Um, it's the same way I think we, will, we, we can imagine Veracity AI, for example, something that helps you to filter the stuff that comes at you, information that comes at you, and look at and figure out what are facts, what are statements in this document, whether it is a web page or a document or a news feed or whatever it might be. Um, figure out what are the facts that are being stated here and then trace those facts back and do a real time fact check from them. You know, and, and maybe you know you could imagine looking at a news article that someone has posted on social media, click it, open it, the veracity AI does its thing, and it highlights things in green that are, that can be fact-checked. It highlights things in red that are fact-checked, found patently false, and then things that are you know una- that's unable to, to fact-check for you, they come in orange. So you get this kind of uh, traffic light effect. Um, you know, you could build something like that, uh, and I hope that somebody does at some point uh, to help us figure out in a post-truth world, um, help us to navigate and understand what really is true. Now, you can argue then, well, how does the AI determine whether something's true or not? 
Well, you, you have to then decide what are the ultimate sources that you trust and have the AI know these are the sources that I trust. Uh, it really does make, uh, make brilliant sense. I mean, you touched on uh, the impact it's potentially going to have and arguably is already you know, having on and leadership roles and, and the sort of things that are there and, and touched again on the Teams bit. But uh, personally for leaders, what do you think they should be doing, should be thinking about their approach they should be, uh, be taking right now? First thing is to be open-minded and curious. Uh, I don't think you can expect your team to deliver a 20 to 40% productivity gain by embracing AI if you haven't tried it yourself. So I think it starts with a leader. If you haven't tried ChatGPT, um, do it. <laughs> now find the ChatGPT app, stick it on your phone. I personally like a version, an app called Perplexity. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a great way. It's connected to ChatGPT, but it's the sort of layers on top of it that let you do searches of the web and information. It's a great research tool. You now start using tools like that. Um, as you've been trying, you know, experiment with writing tools. Try something like Grammarly, which will help you to improve your writing. Um, but you know, get comfortable with these tools so that when you're talking about AI to your teams, you can talk knowledgeably. So I think to do that, you have to be a bit brave. Um, you know, you, if you're a leader, you may be getting towards the end of your career and you think, ah, maybe I'll just ride it out. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> that's not, that's not what being a leader is. You know, being a leader means you try this stuff first. Don't rely on your IT department. You know, maybe have them hook you up with some stuff to try out, but you need to try it yourself, which means being brave and being curious. And so that's where I would start. Um, and learn as much as you can about AI. You know, you are a leader because you're good at whatever line of work you're in. Um, now you have an additional responsibility to learn about this thing called AI. That's why I have a job. I spend my time talking to leadership teams around the world, uh, helping them to understand this stuff um, and to understand the implications for their businesses in the next two, five, 10, 15 years. So curiosity and brand. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, and I, I, I really think your point about riding it out is an interesting one because I, I think, and, and when you add to that your comment earlier that actually in the next twenty years technology is going to change more than it has in the in a previous fifty kind of thing, and already so, certainly someone of my age, you know, I look at the amount of technological change that has occurred just in my lifetime is quite extraordinary, and the uh, and. I'm definitely, you know, in the, in the stage where I'm in the last, relatively last few years of my career. Uh, and I think there is a risk that you turn around and go, no, this is all a bit too much. I'll just let the youngsters deal with that. And and you're right. I think you can't, you can't sit on your laurels and just expect to others to bring you stuff in this world. You need to definitely be looking at where the opportunities lie, where the risks lie, I think as well, and being a bit more balanced about uh, about some of that. And the only way you can do that is through knowledge, for yeah. sure. Uh, so I think that's really great advice. I think, you know, having a, a better understanding of it. And actually, you know, to be honest, employing people like you to do to do some of that is obviously a good thing to do as well, because clearly, you know, there's an awful lot of misinformation in this space. And I think just general nervousness, isn't there as well about, you know, because you get that kind of Terminator yeah. scenario, we're going to we'll come on and talk about risks specifically in a while, but, you know, where pe people are, I think not least because the media tends to focus on some of this sort of stuff that the, the inevitably the language around it is it's going to take your job away and it's going to change your life completely, mostly for the bad and, uh, and, and all that sort of stuff, which is 
making people much more nervous and potentially makes them avoid rather than embrace uh, when, you know, when actually the, the embracing is definitely what they should be doing. I yeah, think. and if your instinct is, I'll see if I can ride this out and avoid this, you need that. that's an important way of looking in the mirror and realizing, oh, actually, I'm not a leader anymore. I need to step aside. Yes, you know, that's abdication of responsibility. This is the one of the biggest technological revolutions in human history. I don't say that lightly. You know, the wheel and industrial revolution and electricity, they were all a pretty big deal. Um, this is huge. And as a leader, if you're not grabbing hold of it, learning everything you can about it, driving your teams to embrace it apace, then you have abdicated your responsibilities as a leader. I agree with all of that, Steve. It's, and, you know, and it's a great segue into the next question, actually, which is all of all about urgency, um, because I, I think there is a sense that there's a lot of uncertainty about where this is going to go and uh, and what the direction of travel looks like for uh, for it. And I think the risk potentially is, if you see it as a risk, uh, is that people do take the wait and see approach because they feel that uh, it's actually safer to watch what happens to the competition and uh, uh, and make sure they're kind of minimizing the risk of making mistakes. What's your mm. take on that? I mean, what, what do you think the, uh, the, the perspective should be for, uh, particularly for uh, commercial leaders? Um, I understand the risk aversion. Um, you know, that's part of what being a leader is, is to assess the risks and you know, act responsibly. I mean, you're a leader for the organization and you need to keep them safe. Um, but I think there is also huge risk in moving too slowly. Uh, I don't think this is a transition where you can be a slow follower. You need to either be a leader or a fast follower at worst. Um, now, why do I say that? I think the, the potential to differentiate your product, your service, your offering in the marketplace when turbocharged with AI capabilities is extreme. Um, let me give you an, an example. Imagine two travel websites, and one of them is the, the, the standard sort of hunt and click filter um, approach that we have today. So if you think about when you go looking for flights, there are you know 500,000 flights in the world, and you're picking the one that's right for you. It's going to get you from A to B in the time you want, in the class you want, in the seat that you want. And that's a filtering exercise. And you use, you know, menus and click through and and it's a it's a sort of a search process now compare that to a, a company that has invested in ai there's an ai avatar of a travel agent that you can talk to and just explain what you're looking for and have a back and forth conversation you know imagine what travel agents used to be like in the 60s that's how you found yourself you know a flight or a hotel and they would tell you about the hotels and oh yeah it looks nice in the brochure um, imagine an AI that can create you a customized video brochure that understands your preferences, that can say, oh, this is a, this, I think you'll like this hotel because it's got a nice pool. It's close to a park. I know you like going for a stroll in the morning with a cup of coffee. You know, to, to have that level of customization and to make it a delightful experience. So which travel company are you going to use if the price is the same? 
So the company that hasn't invested in AI is out of business. And I'm there's a uh, an entrepreneur and you know, a guy who founded the X Prize and Singularity University, Peter Diamandis. He's an interesting thinker on all things future. And he said there are going to be two types of companies at the end of the decade, those that are fully utilizing AI and those that are out of business. And he's right. <laughs> because that differentiation is going to be so stark. I don't know, you know, for each listener, they can have a different set of businesses, but not only will they be able to turbocharge the offering that they have, they also are going to boost the productivity of their teams. Early tests, um, some studies that have been done by Harvard Business School, uh, MIT, by Wharton Business School, they're seeing productivity gains of between 20 and 40%. That's with the tools today. Imagine what those tools are going to do when they're tuned to particular roles. And, and people are talking about productivity gains of 100 or 200%. So can you afford to leave that on the table as a business leader? No. <laughs> you, you have to pursue this. And then I think the final dimension of this is there is going to be a continued fight for the best talent. If you are... Um, you know, a 30-something who has a really good set of skills, great CV, and you've got companies fighting over you, are you going to work for the company that's invested in all of these tools and created a workplace where they can offload all of the boring tasks, they are elevated in their capabilities, they feel supported by the organization for that, and they have great job satisfaction and high output and productivity? Or they're going to go to a company that's a laggard, doesn't have that infrastructure, still requires them to do the boring tasks. You know, it, it, it's so obvious that they're going to go for the companies that have made this investment. So for access to the best talent, that's the other reason to embrace this at speed too. Now, you can't run into it wildly because this technology is not quite mature yet. There are concerns over copyright. You know, the, the, it's it's not something to run into blindly, but you need to start experimenting, iterating, learning now, so that as the technology matures, you can put it into production faster than your competitors. Yeah, it's fascinating, and some great examples. I mean, the travel agent one is a lovely example. I think of that because I, I mean, I am old enough to recognise going into a travel agent and talking to them about it, and the and I think the. Uh, I mean, it's, it's probably a, a useful follow-on on this about comparatives with other technological waves. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned you know, the wheel and the industrial revolution, yeah. but obviously much more recently than that, we've had um, mobile computing, social media, cloud computing, the web is going from strength to strength. And, and I think, you know, it'd be really interesting to get your perspective on uh, on some of that as well, because one of the things that struck me as you were speaking just then is around personalization. I mean, mm -hmm. I find, and I, I do find it quite scary, some of this stuff as well, actually, that the, you know, my wife will be searching for something on her phone uh, mm -hmm. at home, but obviously it's our the same IP address. And therefore the next thing is up on my Facebook feed or whatever pops up uh -huh. stuff that is is targeting, you know, me stroke us, with things that, you know, kind of, and it doesn't say it, but it's because you looked at this now where you might be interested in this. And, I, and I, I can obviously see the direction of travel to it being even more of that and even more personalization and, and you know, and cleverer personalization that actually is going to work 
Um, but how how far and fast is that moving in your uh, in your view? That was a lot of questions all in one. So let's unpack that. Sorry. So, you know, no, this is good. Um, this is a good challenge. I like it. So let's start with the first one. So how does this stack up in the grand scheme of things? Um, yeah, we had the mobile revolution. That was pretty big because it put a remote control for life in everybody's pocket or purse. So, you know, that was a big change. Location-based services, you know, Uber rose on the back of that, uh, another sort of location-based services. Um, so that was a pretty big deal. You know, that was it was a big advance forward and it it put the internet into the hands of five or four to five billion people on the planet. That's a big deal. Um, then we had social media, which one can argue was um net maybe a bad thing. But it's also been great for connecting old friends and staying in touch with your family. I live five thousand miles from my family, so you know, and a lot of my old friends, so it's been great for that. Um, you know, it's a medium one. Um, I think we need to look at AI as being akin to electricity. When electricity came, um, it changed everything. It changed the way that people work. Um, it, you know, by giving us electric lights, it extended the workday in factories. Um, through washing machines, it, uh, it, it empowered women because Back then, the work of washing clothes was largely the work of women, and that would take them a long time. And then washing machines kind of helped um, to reduce that time and help them to participate in the workplace more effectively. So there's, there's these huge knock-on effects you get from a very powerful, generalizable technology. And by generalizable, I mean you can, you can use electricity to power a car. You can use it to run a Zoom call, as we're doing right now. You can use it to light a factory, you can use it to do a washing machine, and so on. Um, AI is another such generalizable technology that you can use to do many, many things. So I think the same way that we had the electric era, the electric revolution, we are moving into the intelligence era. And we are going to have, you know, what, what defines an era is that the cost of that thing comes down towards zero quite rapidly such that it's very affordable. So imagine not very long from now, powerful tech, powerful intelligence being available to, for close to zero cost anywhere you want it. What will people do with that? What problems will they solve? What new capabilities will they build? Um, I think it's going to change every part of business. It's going to transform education. You'll be able to put a personal tutor in everybody's pocket. Anything you want to learn, you'll be able to learn from your AI tutor. And that's not just for kids, but for adults too. You'll be able to learn anything you want. And I think it's going to revolutionize healthcare. You know, it's just going to be such a profound effect. It is going to transform society in a way that's even bigger than the coming of electricity. So that's, that's how I put it in the grand scheme of things. Now, you then went on to ask, well, um, personalization. Is this going to turbocharge personalization? Absolutely. And in both good ways and bad ways. You know, on the misinformation, disinformation, you will have social media, spam mail, things that target you and your political leanings and the way you see the world and that are targeted to radicalize you even more. So that's the, the downside. 
on the upside, you're going to have new experiences, interactions with brands, um, uh, interactions with products um, that delight you because they're tuned to exactly what you like and they know about you. So that travel agent example is a perfect one, right? Over time, that travel agent AI is going to learn what you like, what you dislike. You know, you can give feedback on the holiday book for you last year, and it'll make sure that the holiday this year is going to be even better. And that's not a bad thing. No, absolutely. Very, uh, uh, very well done to uh, unpack my convoluted set of questions <laughs> in a great answer. I was listening to everything you said. Yeah, uh, well, no, you proved that very, uh, very eloquently. Uh, for those that are laggards in this space um, at the moment yeah. and, and or just uncertain feeling, don't really know where to get started, what, what do you think is the, the way ahead for that? And, you know, how do you get yourself on the, uh, on the starting grid for, uh, for moving forward? Yeah, um, it comes back to that brave and curious thing. But, you know, if in doubt, hire, I guess hire somebody like me who can guide you um, leaders often don't want to ask what they might consider to be stupid questions because it makes them look weak in front of colleagues. So I have some clients who hire me just to spend an hour with them a week, helping them understand this stuff. Um, or they bring me in for a, you know, a private meeting with the board or a private meeting with the management team to give them sort of AI 101 and bring everybody in the room up to the same level of understanding and get them on that journey because you need to get started that being a laggard is not an option. So, I mean, hire somebody like me, uh, read. Um, there are lots of great resources on YouTube um, to help you learn about AI. Um, I actually have a secret page on my website, uh, which I, I give to clients who've attended some of my presentations. Um, and I'll share it with your audience now so they can check it out. It's got Lots of resources, there's sort of interesting news article links up there. There's learning resources for, you know, newsletters you can sign up for that are about AI or um, video series on YouTube you can watch. There's a bunch of videos up there of kind of demos of AI. And people find it useful. So um, I'll share the URL. It's stevebrownfuturist.com slash cool, C-O-O-L. So a set of cool resources that you can check out. And you can't find that by just going to my website. You have to type that whole URL in, and that'll take you to the secret hidden page. And that, so that's a good way to get you started as well. But really, it comes down to, you know, you need to set the tone in your organization, set a sense of urgency, to build a culture of curiosity and urgency combined, help people to not feel afraid about this. And position this clearly to your employees as this is a way to make your lives easier. It's a way to elevate your capabilities to offload the kind of work that you don't like doing uh, and to improve your job satisfaction and that that be part of the mindset going into it. This is not about replacing people. This is about helping them to do their jobs more effectively uh, and, and to make their jobs more enjoyable and, and have that mindset and part of the culture and then get people to start doing pilot projects. And it's probably good to start them internally, you know, use your employees as guinea pigs rather than your customers as this technology is maturing. And I've worked with some organizations, for example, who've created what's called an enterprise intelligence agent. So very often employees, particularly in larger organizations, they have a lot of questions about 
policies, procedures, you know, can I take vacation um, to help an or extended period of time out to help an ailing parent? You know, there's all these sort of policy questions. And what they've done is they've taken all of the company's policy documents, put them into what's called a vector database, connected it to a foundational AI that can help people work all the way through this. And they create a chatbot that lets people and employees ask questions about the company or get information about products or, you know, and, and do it in a way where that information is very easy to get um, and helps them to be more effective. It's, a, it's an easy way to start um, and to build the practice of how do we take the data that's in our organization and turn it into intelligence? And that's fundamentally what you're trying to do. And that's a bit, it's also a way of capturing expertise in the organization so that as you get inevitable turnover and people walk out the door, you're not losing their expertise when they leave. You know, the information that they've learned, the, the sort of corporate knowledge is now stored in a central intelligence agent that captures that knowledge, that expertise, and keeps it inside the organization for people to leverage. And, and new employees coming in can then learn from that. Uh, some great answers uh, and advice in there. Thanks very much. I'm very grateful for your uh, secret web page. Uh, yeah, I'll put no that in the in the podcast description as well, so that people can uh, can find it there if they uh, if they want to go to that. Uh, we didn't specifically talk about this beforehand, but in terms of that preparation and moving into this space, how well do you think the education system's doing with this? I mean, given the pace of change that you're describing yeah. and the relative paucity of real expertise. Um, do you think we're setting ourselves up for uh, for success with um, education, at, you know, particularly at kind of um, yeah. secondary and university level? I think it's spotty based on my personal experience. I've, I've also been hired by universities, by associations of community colleges and so on um, to help them think through this. And, you know, they, they tend to get hung up a bit on, well, people can use chat GPT to cheat in their exams and write their essays for them. You know, and if you if they get wrapped around the axle with that, you know, they're not moving forward. Uh, what that says is the technology is caught up to the point where they need to start assessing people in different ways. You know, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Uh, I, I think generally people don't like writing essays, and um, I think largely educators don't enjoy reading them and marking them either. So why are we still doing that? You know, there's other ways to test people's knowledge to test people's abilities to communicate. Um, and so, you know, I encourage people to really think through how to not just make sure that people are trained on how to use this stuff to be productive in the world. Um, the same way, you know, we had to be trained how to use calculators to do maths. Um, we now need to use how to use these tools to, to get things done. Um, but they also need to look at how do we re-engineer the educational process to take advantage of these very powerful tools? Because if they're not making taking advantage of them, you know, ultimately they're going to become irrelevant. Unfortunately, you know, because if you can, but you can have an AI tutor in your pocket. Let's say three years from now, it's it's probably that close. That can teach you anything you want in an interactive back and forth way. Now, why are people going to pay for an expensive education other than for certification credibility? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, educational establishments really need to rethink the model that they have um, because it's the same as the model that was created 
in the what, 1850s to move people off the land and into factories and educate them. You know, a, a tutor standing at the front of a room, people sat at desks, a blackboard. Now it's, you know, maybe PowerPoint presentation, but it's pretty much the same model. How would you reimagine education um, in an era of AI with, with all of those new capabilities? But that's, a, that's another thing that I, that I get hired to do is to help educational establishments think through that and figure out what might a reimagined education process look like. Uh, it's very helpful. Uh, and interestingly, on your exam uh, example, I mean, I was the first in the in the days of O-levels before GCSEs in, in the um, UK. Yes. Um, uh, I was the first year where we were allowed to use calculators instead mm-hmm. of slide rules and tables and things. But And there was one specific question which was uh, was focused around doing exactly that. And you had to say whether you use tables, a slide rule or a calculator. But and it's amazing how the world has now changed. It's just completely normal because you know, uh, people inevitably think that way. And, and interestingly, in the uh, in the um, military environment, when I was first flying, um, doing doing the kind of fast jet flying I was doing, we were still in a world where navigation systems were inaccurate and unreliable. So it would regularly fail, and, and the net result was you yeah. had to be extremely good at map reading and map reading at very high speed. And and you did get very good at that, and you you spent an awful lot of time on it. Now, of course, you know you look at an equivalent you know, military fast jet typhoon or uh, or the Joint Strike Fighter in the UK. You know, they've got GPS, terrain reference nav system, very sophisticated inertial navigation system that is extremely reliable and extremely accurate, and it's all common filtered. So you get this you know extraordinarily accurate nav solution, and. We've uh, over time had to move away from a world where we were saying, right, on check rides, you need we turn all that off because you know now we need to just turn around and go back to basics and show you yeah. can still do the basics. And of course, the reality is a you can't turn it off, and b why do you need to go back and do that? Because you're not going to do it for real. You're not going to do that in a, in a collateral damage, yeah. you, know, you know, intolerant world. You're not going to turn around and go and press on in some kind of reversionary mode. So I completely agree with you. I think there's an awful lot in there that says. You know, evolution is and, and fast evolution verging on revolution is very important here in terms of of shifting the dial to uh, to get it to a uh, to a better place. Yeah, a, a comment on that. Um, it used, remember, there was a time when I was told, you know, you need to know how to do this without a calculator because you're not always going to have a calculator in your back pocket. <laughs> well, yes, I do. <laughs> I can whip out my phone and do a calculation anytime, and I think. We are moving very quickly. You know, I already have an AI in my pocket all the time. I can talk to it and ask it questions and get help and research. And that's yeah. just going to get more and more powerful. Google Translate's a great example, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's fantastic. But the bigger question is, are we, are we hobbling our abilities as a species by outsourcing more and more to machines? Now, yeah, I think your example of GPS is a good one. A lot of people don't know how to find their way around a city anymore. They don't build a map in their own heads of even where there's the place where they live because they're so reliant. They've outsourced their sense of direction to a phone. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Don't know. But it's, it's, that's the kind of question we have to wrestle with is how much do we want to outsource? And, you know, people say, well, we can't, we don't know how to build anything anymore. Um, well, that's been true for hundreds of years, <laughs> you know, that, that we, we've so specialized in our capabilities. There's some guy who tried to build a toaster. 
And he said himself, you know, I'm going to do it from, from first principles. I'm going to mine the mica. I'm going to mine and process the copper to make the element. And he failed in the end. He tried, it took him nine months to try and do it on his own. We're already way past the point where people can do, you know, do these things without help from machinery uh, and specialization. So it's kind of a moot point now, I think. Yeah, there's a great on that, on that build a toaster thing. I, I love there's a YouTube clip out there of, uh, of, the challenge given to a couple of kids was right. Okay, dial this number on this old style rotary dial phone. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. And the uh, and of course they failed to do it because they just yeah. couldn't work out how they, you know, it was. You had to actually let the dial go all the way around and then rotate all the way back. Yeah, so it's very uh, very amusing to watch. Yeah, I guess there's a reasonable segue as well into risks. I mean, we we talked a little bit about this earlier on, but. I mean, there are some big names out there. I mean, Stephen Hawking, you know, obviously now departed, but uh, Elon Musk, both of them have been pretty vocal about the risks of AI and and allowing it to go too fast into kind of the super intelligence kind of world, if you want to describe it as such. And and to what extent do you disagree, agree with those concerns? And, and you know, obviously, uh, we, again, we touched on it earlier, but the media is, you know, hyping this up big time. And I just wonder about, you know, back to leaders and how do they in their own minds mitigate some of those risks and, and say, you know, sell the story in a more helpful and constructive way? There's different categories of risk. Um, let's take on X risk first, which is sort of code in the AI biz for existential risk, an AI that kills us, kills us all. Um, first of all, I need to say Terminator's not real. The Matrix isn't real. They're entertainment. Oh, but do you know and, that? <laughs> well, <laughs> the same way that if the Terminator dropped through time and came back to 1984 when the movie is set and said, hello, everybody, should we have a cup of tea? You wouldn't have a movie, right? It, it, movies, stories are driven by antagonists and protagonists and in their battle over time. So Hollywood movies are designed that they are – by nature, sci-fi is dystopian in Hollywood because it sells movie seats. Utopian science fiction doesn't really exist because it's just not interesting. And the same is true in media, right? Stories about how AI is doing great things get overwhelmed by people panicking about the potential risk of AI. So when you see stuff in the news, you have to take that into account. That is what sells Advertising is what's, it's what gets eyeballs, is scaring people. Now, all that said, for a sort of balance of proportionality, we should be concerned about it. Of course we should. Um, AI is a very powerful technology, same way as nuclear technology is very powerful. You can harness it to power a city or level a city in the case of nuclear technology. So AI is in that category, and we need to be careful with it. But that doesn't mean... You know, 90% of France is powered by nuclear energy. And that's not a bad thing because they're not creating much greenhouse gases. So, you know, whatever your feelings on, on nuclear power, um, we should be concerned and watch AI. But I, I'm actually more concerned about AI being misused by bad actors. Um, and I'm worried about bias and inequality. So, AIs, they're trained on data, right? And, and you can think about an AI as a mirror. It is a mirror we hold up to ourselves because it's trained on human data, typically human 
behavioral data. And so an AI is not inherently bad, but it reflects bad human behavior, historic bad human behavior. So Amazon built an AI to help them filter their CVs and choose which people to interview based on historical which CVs have been successful. And they found it was biased against women. Now, it wasn't a bad AI. The AI was revealing historic hiring practices at Amazon. And they had to, one, they had to shut down that AI, not use it. And two, they'd have a lot of soul searching about why they had done that in the past and how to eradicate that bias. So when you're training an AI, you need to be mindful about what you're training it with so you don't have a biased AI. Uh, I also worry about uneven access to AI. You know, if these are very powerful technologies, does it exacerbate the digital divide? I think we have to worry about that. And yeah, we have to worry about X risk and make sure that these AIs are what's called aligned. That's the term used in the AI business to say an AI that does what we want it to do and what we expect it to do, that it's aligned with our preferences and that it's safe to use. And there's a lot of work, research work going into that field, probably not enough, but it's something that the AI community is incredibly aware of and working on. So when it comes down to it, the way I step back and think about it is, what's more scary to me? Is it a world without AGI or ASI, which is artificial general intelligence and AI that's as good at doing all things as a human? or ASI, which is super intelligence, which is better at doing things than a human? Am I more worried about a world with AGI and ASI in it? Or am I more worried about a world with AGI and ASI not in it? We've screwed up pretty badly as a species. (laughs) You know, we polluted the planet. We are uh, changing the climate to a point where it'll be fine for other species, but probably not for us. Um, you know, a world with AGI in it and or ASI in it, we may get breakthroughs in fusion energy, unlimited energy, new materials, tools to help us fix the climate. You know, I'm actually more nervous about a world without AGI in it than one within it, personally. Uh, that's a terrific answer. I, uh, I, I really like that. I think that's, a, uh, that's such a good way to kind of wrap off uh, or tie off this uh, this AI section because uh, I think you've you've offered so many fantastic insights there. It's really uh, really great and some free resources, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, <laughs> I've got just a couple of of kind of wrapper questions that I always ask people, or, uh, or there's three actually that I'd, I'd welcome your view on. I mean, you're living in this world, you know, where uh, and as you said uh, at the front end, you know, jobs might get more fun and. Clearly, some people might not have jobs and all the rest of it, but work-life balance, if you like to call it that. I know some people don't like the term, but what do you do and, uh, and you know, what, do you, uh, what do you do to de-stress and recommend for others to be able to do that? Um, well, I, I don't think about it as work-life balance anymore. I think we learned during COVID when we were all you know, sent back to our houses to think about what we'd done for a year or two. Um, I think about it more like work-life fusion. And I, 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 because I work from home, I then travel for a living. I have clients all over the world. Um, you know, I'm, I have that luxury. But I think more and more people are finding that flexibility in their, in their work life to be able to fuse their life life into it. So I, I try as much as I can to do that and to blend the two. If I need to go and, you know, up the shops, 
uh, and spend half an hour doing that during my workday, I have the luxury of the ability to do that and I do it. And that's what gets me through it as I get, I get these breaks. I can sit down and just power through stuff and then I can take half an hour or 10 minutes and just have a break. And for me personally, it's walking. Um, and I'm, I'm at an age now, I'm in my 50s, that uh, I don't run anymore <laughs> because my knees uh, complain too much, but I walk. I try and walk 100 miles a month. That's my goal, which sounds like a lot. It's only like three and a bit miles a day. And uh, that's how I clear my mind. I use the time to listen to podcasts, listen to music. Uh, I find that's my most creative time, and that's what relaxes me. So that's what I do. Yeah, me too, actually. Uh, I similarly gave up running uh, a long time ago, and the and the dogs get me out for a nice bit of respite. I think it's also good for my mind-clearing exercise, you know, just to give you space yeah. and, yeah, uh, and sort of decluster a bit. Yeah, for sure, and no, that's helpful. Last two. What's the most memorable event of your career? Um, probably when I learned a lesson, and it, this is going to sound stupid, Bob, but I was an engineer. Um, I started at Intel. I was an engineer for about three and a half years. And then this guy called Stuart Robinson, who I have very great affection for because he changed the course of my life. He came to me and said, hey, you know, I'm hiring a marketing person for this new product line I have, and I, I, I'd like you to apply. And I, he was very kind, you know, to sit me down and, and tell me about this job. And I said, oh, no, I'm an engineer. I, that's not really what I do. I don't know anything about marketing. He went, oh, okay. And to his credit, he then came back a week later and said, I've, I've been thinking about it. I think you really should apply for this job. What he was telling me was, if you apply for this job, you're going to get it, <laughs> which is nice. Um, and, I, and I said, no, again. And then he came back a third time and said, look, you really – you really need to apply for this job. And so eventually it was, you know, it was just so stupid. I was probably, you got the hint. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I don't know, I was 25 at the time. I should have been smarter than that. But uh, I said, okay, I, I get it now. And so I applied for it, got the job. And it made me realize you always need to be, if someone opens a door in front of you, stick your head through it and have a look. You know, because you never know what's through there. It might not be for you. But I, I, from that moment, um, not only did it change the course of my career, and uh, I, I went on the business side of Intel rather than the engineering side of Intel, but it changed my attitude. And I always coached the people that I was then a leader to, to have the same attitude. If somebody opens a door in front of you, at least have a look through it because you never know it could change your life for the better. Yeah, that's great advice. I think the, the, the similar line I use quite a bit to that is never close doors you don't need to close. Because actually, quite often, you might want to come back to that and, and go and have another look through it. Because if you shut it permanently and welded it <laughs> uh, then and walked away angrily from something when you didn't need to and uh, just upset people in a way that makes it very difficult to, to row back, then that's not a great place to be either. So no, I, no, top tip, really helpful. And a very final one, which I'm almost hesitant to ask you, because I think you're probably the most uh, interesting person I've yet to ask this specific question of. What's the most difficult question you've ever been asked? Which for a futurist is uh, is going to be an interesting one. Oh, you mean other than this question? <laughs> uh, that's really hard to answer. I get asked, I mean, because I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the future. Typically when people ask me questions about the future, I've already thought about them. Um, I do get some challenging some ones sometimes. 
um, which then makes me go on a walk and I think about them and come up with an answer. But um, honestly, as I reflect on it, probably the most difficult question I was ever asked was, which two people in your group do you want to fire? Well, that was the yeah, hardest yeah. decision I ever had to make. We were given a headcount target. Intel was downsizing. I was managing a group of, I think, nine people at the time. Sounds about right. Yeah. Eight to nine people. It's a small group. And I was told I had to lose two heads and trying to think about, well, how do I approach that? Um, yeah, that, that was probably the toughest question I was ever given, you know, because you have to think about, well, are the people who want to move on? Who are the lower performers? What's the best thing to do for the team versus the individuals? You know, that was, that was a real dilemma. That was the toughest, probably. No, I can completely see that. I think those people challenging ones are often very, very hard to deal with for sure. So uh, no, that makes absolute sense. Steve, you have been fantastically generous with your time and your insight. I mean, you are a guy that is in demand doing this stuff. And uh, and I know lots and lots of companies have not only employed you, but uh, employ your services as an independent. And I, I think sharing as you have so freely i'm extremely grateful because i think it's a uh, it's a really valuable set of resources you've uh, and advice you've offered uh, offered to all of the listeners on this and i'm extremely grateful thank you very much indeed that's uh, it's massively appreciated yeah pleasure and if if i can help anybody you know it's what i do for a living and so you can find me at stevebrown.ai and that's my website you can reach out to me through that uh, i have a book you can you can find if you want it's on amazon it's called the innovation ultimatum uh, it's a, it's, I wrote it in 2019, came out in 2020. Most of it, because it's a 10-year horizon, is still relevant and valid. Um, so that might be a useful set of resources for you as well. So glad to help. It's a real pleasure chatting to you, Bob. This was really a good set of questions. You stretched my brain, and I had a lot of fun. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks ever so much, Steve. 